Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. I'm here today to talk about the question of what Christians owe to God and country, to God and their nation, leaning heavily, but not exclusively, on Romans 13, right? Passage from Paul's, uh, the beginning, really, the first seven lines, which are all in your handout. Um, My plan in my talk is there'll be three basic parts. First, I'm going to speak about the issue of Christianity and patriotism or Christianity and and politics in general terms. Second, I'm going to talk a little bit about the way in which it comes to light in scripture and especially in the transition from the Old to the New Testament. Um, And finally, I'm going to try to give something like a picture of what I understand the relationship of those things to be based on passages from the New Testament, but above all, Romans 13 with a little help uh, from Thomas Aquinas and his commentary on that. Uh, Before getting into the meat of my talk, um, let me say that a lot of what I will be saying and claiming is not much more than a restatement of what I've understood or tried to understand um, from an address given by Joseph Ratzinger, the first, the, that's the, uh, the, 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 the man who later became Pope Benedict XVI, first in 1962 and then published as a book in 1970 under the title The Unity of Nations, right? Um, I'm not going to claim to have understood everything in this remarkable little book. I commend it to everyone here, uh, but if, it t- if any of you has read it, and at times it sounds like I'm plagiarizing it, well, uh, there's a reason it sounds that way, although I've, I, haven't, I think I haven't broken any rules of academic integrity. So part one, the problem of quest- Christian politics. Today's talk is intended at bottom to address a pretty simple question. What is the political obligation of a Christian, of a Catholic if you like, although Christian, although I won't be talking about the Pope today particularly, um, to what extent and in what ways are Christians bound to serve their political community? That issue is one that runs through the heart of Christian political thought as such, as I've understood it and read it. It invites a series of connected and interwoven questions that follow closely on it. Um, What precisely are Christian duties to the commonwealth? Do worldly powers have any hold on the Christian conscience? Should they have any hold on the Christian conscience? What happens if those powers themselves are held by people who are not Christian or even held by individuals unfriendly or hostile to Christianity as such? I believe that the strongest statement on this question to be found in 
I would say in the whole Bible, but at least a very strong statement and the strongest in Paul's letters is the one from Romans 13, which I've made my subject. Um, I want to read out now just the first two lines from that excerpt. I'll read a little more later in the talk, uh, but just to put on the table the strong statement in favor of strong Christian political obligation. I'd like to read out these first two uh, lines, and this is in your handout. This is the first passage. I put it uh, after this, by the way. The handout I will use occasionally, but not consistently. Uh, it opens with the Romans passage, and then I'll quote the others, but they're all in, in, in sequential order after that. Quote begins, let every person be subordinate. That's actually every soul. Let every soul be subordinate to the higher authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that have been established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority opposes what God has appointed, and those who oppose it will bring judgment upon themselves. So clearly, at least this passage suggests a strong uh, uh, duty of deference to one's political authorities. It does, however, leave open a couple of further questions, right? Um, first, what exactly that entails? Is this a recommendation of mindless political docility? That seems implausible, and Thomas won't read it that way. What about all the language in the next couple of lines about rulers always serving good? How do those standards apply in real life and what happens if a ruler in some circumstances does something that's evil? And then second, right, so kind of question number one is just specifying those, ob those obligations. Question number two, what's the, and this is to me really the more interesting one, what is the basis of the claim that Christians have this kind of, that everyone, every soul, but Christians specifically, have this kind of strong obligation to whoever happens to be in authority. Okay? Um, so those are the big, the two, I would say, big issues that I want to bring to this. Um, now, these questions, to my mind, are obviously something more than academic questions. I think they're very interesting for scholars, to be sure, and I'm a big fan of scholarship, and we at the Thomistic Institute are here to promote the Christian intellectual tradition. But one of the interesting things about that Christian intellectual tradition is that it speaks to issues that are important to us in the way that we live, right? They speak to us in our ordinary lives. Um, and it seems to me that Christians and Catholics today face this question of what kind of patriotism and service is due to their country in some specific fashions, right? First, in today's world, we are keenly aware of at least some cases in which the political laws are contrary to the beliefs that Catholicism teaches. Uh, the prevalence of legal abortion is maybe the most visible, most visible of those, but think of all the other issues that you like. Progressive teachings on marriage that are contrary to church traditions, for instance, right? Um, and for Christians today, it seems to me that must raise a question 
about the extent to which their loyalty to their country is valid. I would add to this a second factor, right? Somewhat more amorphous, um, but I think still important, which is that Christians today have an increasingly strong sense, not only Christians, uh, but Christians in particular, have a strong sense of disaffection with their political community. Um, you can see this sometimes in criticisms of the basic principles of the classically liberal political regime, of the American regime, right? Uh, there's an increasingly prominent intellectual movement criticizing liberalism as such, and even if it doesn't raise the question in every case, it can't help but raise the question in at least the minds of some whether they have obligations if they think the principles of liberalism are untrue, do they have obligations to try to serve and preserve this political order in the form that it now has, right? In other words, can one be a dutiful citizen of a liberal political regime and a Catholic if liberal principles are contrary to Catholic principles? Now, this problem even if it takes on particularly intense dimension, or has, has, a, particularly inten has a particular intensity in our age, um, is not new in our age. And part of what I want to convey in this talk is just that as long as there has been Christian thought, there have been serious Christian questions about the nature of politics, right? Um, so let me, again, before getting into my attempt to stake out kind of provisional answer to this question, try to state it still one more time, but now in something closer to what I take to be its classical form. And I want to pose this to begin with as a kind of challenge to the claim that Christians should have any political obligations at all. So. Um, there is a certain strong case that Christians should not have any concern with political life because there is a strong case that Christians should not be concerned with the things of this world as a whole. The purpose, the end of Christian life is not satisfaction in this veil of tears. It is uh, happiness in heaven. And one might argue that the bounds of this world should not confine Christians here because they are bound to follow only God, to do only what he commands. And any authority, any subordinate political authority, could make only a low claim on their conscience. Um, it seems to me that that problem has been around as long as Christianity has been around, and I think there's good evidence for it in Paul's letters. What I'm going to try to do in the next two parts of my talk, first by talking about a little biblical history and then by paying attention to the specific passage from Romans, is stake out a kind of Christian case in favor of political obligation, right? In favor of political patriotism. Um, and I hope it's something that makes sense, and if it doesn't, 
we'll argue about it at the end. Um, let me just add one thing to this, this opening set of reflections, right? Uh, there's an in, uh, 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 one might make the case, right, that of course Christians should obey political authorities, but only as a matter of mere prudence, right? They'll be punished if they don't and unable to practice their faith. That is not the shape of the case that I'm going to make. I do not believe it's the shape of the case that Paul makes, and I do not think it's what Augustine would say either, right? I believe that there is some imposition of a genuine, if limited and circumscribed, duty to one's nation, one's country, one's community. And it's that claim, the conscientious claim, not the low prudent claim. When I say low prudent, I'm, I'm comparing it to a high kind of prudence, right? Uh, but the one that merely seeks self-preservation, um, that is not the claim that I wish to stake out today. Okay? So. Part two, biblical data is my, 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 my phrase for this. Um, and here, I have to say, if, if, if in the talk as a whole I'm leaning heavily on uh, Joseph Ratzinger, it's, it's, it's most uh, uh, pronounced in this section. This, this, is, this is, everything here is, is drawn heavily from my understanding of what he wrote in those early essays. So if the question is, political obligation and the duties that we have to our political communities. The first, the prior question that it seems to me that we need to ask and answer is where those nations come from, right? What is the origin of nations? Why is the human race, why, is, why are human beings divided up into nations? And I'd like to sketch now the biblical answer to that question. As I suppose you all know, um, the origin of the nations is told in the book of Genesis in the story of the Tower of Babel. Um, I've included the relevant verses in your handouts. It's Genesis chapter 11. I think it's the, the second thing I've got there. I'm not sure. Um, but the story is probably familiar to all of you. I'll retell it anyway. Um, in the era before the flood, and then, during the covenant with Noah, all human beings speak the same language and all human beings live under the same rules and the same covenant. Ratzinger has a lovely image of that when he speaks about the covenant made with Noah. He points out that God's sign of that covenant was a rainbow that went over the whole world. Ratzinger, at least, reads that as indicating as I think the text indicates, that the covenant with Noah was not particular to any one people, but was made with humanity as a whole. But then things begin to go astray. In the land of Shinar, um, the people try to construct a tower that as they say, and I'll read again, I'll read a short quote here, uh, reaches to the heavens so that they may make a name for themselves. Otherwise, they will be scattered, so they think, over the face of the whole earth. God, seeing this move as dangerous and even sinful, splits mankind by confusing the languages. So the transgression that was the attempt to build the tower and the subsequent punishment of that transgression 
are the biblical origin of the separate nations. The next, ah, let him be. Um, uh, the next, very exciting stuff. He probably knows 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 what's coming. Anyway, um, <laughs> the next part of sal of salvation history um, is, of course, the beautiful story of Abraham and the special covenant made by God with him. This story only makes sense if we bear in mind that it comes after the events of Babel, that is, after the splitting of the world into separate nations. As a consequence of that, rather than making his next covenant with humanity in general, God makes it with a particular person, Abraham, and with all of his descendants. If you know the book of Genesis, you know there are several statements of the covenant with Abraham. For our purposes, I'm going to read out just the last one. This is spoken by an angel to Abraham after the grand event, or we, we could talk about it later if you want, the, the remarkable event of the binding of Isaac. I'll read again. This one's also in your handout. Um, uh, and I'm just going to read a couple of lines but I think it's important. He writes, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this, that is because you were willing to give up your son Isaac, um, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars, um, uh, uh, sorry, as, as, uh, right, as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Right? So here is, in my understanding, the way the situation stands at this point. One nation among many is singled out um, as one which will be victorious, uh, which will be great, and importantly, it will be the vehicle through which all the world will be blessed. Um, the expectation is that this, that this singular nation will continue to exist and will flourish and will exist as a nation that is, as a political entity, and that it will exist in the world as the greatest political entity. Mutatis mutandis, I take this idea to be the basic political expectation that's present still at the end of the Old Testament, even in some of the at least the prophetic writings are ambiguous as, well, as to how they should be uh, interpreted. Um, but that hope of a worldly nation, um, perfect in its character, is just, well, not perfect, but as just as could be, that's held out as a prospect by this promise, right? But then, when we start thinking about the Christian world and the world of what Christians call the New Testament, um, things begin to change, right? The Christian faith ushers in something new, 
I would say. It's a faith, a teaching that's meant to reach all people. The end, the purpose that Jesus speaks for, um, is not a single worldly political community through which all the others are blessed, but something very different. The promise made to Abraham, what I've quoted already, is fulfilled in a very different fashion. Redemption through Jesus instead of worldly political success. Um, now, some might say that that's a way of going beyond the original promise, right? Um, and providing something more perfect and even providing or recovering some of that original unity which was found before the Tower of Babel. Um, uh, uh, that's, I would say, the Christian reading, characteristically New Testament reading, uh, and you can see this in Paul's letters, I think, clearly enough, um, of the promise made to Abraham to bless the nations. It occurs not by creating a worldly kingdom, but insofar as everyone comes to share in, again, redemption through Jesus Christ. That the Christian teaching has that kind of unity in mind as one of its purposes seems to me to show up clearly at certain points in the, the New Testament. Um, you know the famous line from Galatians that in Christ there is neither male nor female, slave nor master, Greek nor Jew, as though we're all human beings, above all viewed from the perspective of Christ. Everyone is simply a human being and not a member of any particular tribe or even someone who's confined or, or who, who should be understood in light of his sex, right, uh, uh, being male or female. There's the famous event in Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, speaking in tongues, right? Going back to that era before Babel, when human beings could communicate all with one another using the same language. There's something like a restoration of that original state that existed before the fall into certain kinds of sin required division. Okay? But um, these things never work as cleanly as, as we like. Uh, this kind of promise of new unity exists alongside the divisions that human beings had come to know all throughout the New Testament. Yes, the apostles speak in tongues, but they speak in tongues only when they're conveying the message of the Spirit. There's nothing like a worldly political life based on a shared language, right? It's not, it's, 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 a, um, uh, it's a rather narrow thing. Further, and probably more massively, right, the kingdom that's created is not the worldly, perfect political community that was promised to Abraham, or if you don't like perfect, at least the great worldly political community that was promised to Abraham. Jesus says over and over again that his kingdom is not of this earth. And we are reminded in the Gospels again and again uh, to place our, that, 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 that we should store up our treasures in heaven 
rather than on this earth, because where our treasure is, there our heart will be, right? To put that somewhat differently, a division is introduced into human life, right? There's the ordinary stuff of life that's still lived at least somewhat in light of sin, the fact of sin, and there's this other possibility that's held out at the same time of salvation through Christ. Now, where does that leave ordinary political life in Christianity, right? I mean, I've tried to tell this big story of salvation history. Where does that leave these really simple questions of what do I owe my country? What, do I, what, 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 is one owe, what does one owe? What does a Christian owe his or her country now, right? Um, the discussion of politics in the New Testament is famously rather thin, right? Um, whereas the Old Testament gives at least the rough outline of a system of government, something you could, you could fill in bit by bit, um, and it speaks at length about political promises in this world. There's no program like that in the New Testament. We get instead a few famous and somewhat ambiguous and hard to interpret utterances. Uh, I suppose the most famous of them is from Matthew 22. Uh, rend this one is in your, your, your handout, and this is, I'm not going to, I'm just going to read the basic thing. It's what you've all heard a billion times before, um, that one should render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's, and render unto God that which is God. Um, that does sound like it includes some sort of political duty. One does indeed need to pay taxes, like Paul says at the end in uh, Romans, the part I won't read out that I included, Romans 13, 6 to 7, right? But it does seem to place one's obligation to Caesar, to one's community, um, in a far lower place than one's obligation to God. As Augustine interprets that passage, and Aquinas, I've given you um, uh, Aquinas's reading of that passage, uh, the, his mystical reading of that passage, the last quote in the handout, there he follows Augustine. Um, but Augustine points out that if you look at the image of a coin, uh, if you look at the face of a coin, you see the image of Caesar, right? Well, whose image do you see if you look at the human person? God's, right? As I said all the way back in Genesis 1. And just as you owe some kind of coinage to Caesar, so you owe your whole self and whole soul to God, right? Um, that said, he does still say, render unto Caesar, right? And this does not seem to be a complete abnegation of all political obligation. In the last section, I want to try to parse that out in last section of my talk. I want to try to parse that out in some more detail by looking at this selection from Romans 13, just those first few verses. Um, okay, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a sentence. It's a, I always find it's good for people when you hit a transition point to take a, a, a few seconds break so they can think about something else and collect themselves. But now we return to Romans 13. <laughs> So with all of that in mind, I want to come to what I've uh, promised, to promised to address in my title, um, uh, and that's the epistles, and particularly this passage in Romans uh, 13. 
Um, this is the longest and most prominent of several statements in Paul's and other epistles urging the importance of remaining subject to established political hierarchies. I've put several of them in the handout. I'm not going to read them all. There's Titus 3, there's 1 Peter. I think I've hit most of the um, uh, 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 most important ones. I note this only for the following reason, right? The authors of these epistles, St. Paul and St. Peter, both seemed aware that early Christians needed to be reminded of their political obligations, or to put that somewhat more, more put, to put that a little bit differently, um, one wonders, reading these epistles, whether some Christian communities were not being very adherent to the laws that they were given. That's the suggestion that John Locke, for instance, makes in his commentary on the letter to the Romans. Um, and one finds a similar suggestion in St. Thomas's commentary. Uh, this is drawn from the handout, too, and I'll read just a little bit of it. Thomas writes, in the early church, some believers said that they should not be subject to earthly powers on account of the freedom they had received from Christ. Since it says in John, Gospel of John, if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Right? In other words, for Thomas, for John Locke, for several other readers of this, and I think it's a very sensible reading, St. Paul insisted on this teaching very strongly because of a problem that he saw arising in the Christian world, the early church. Okay? Now, St. Paul responds to this problem with a very stern warning to those who know Jesus that they should remain subject to the worldly powers. I've already read the first two sentences of this quote, first two verses of this quote. I'll read the third to the fifth now. This is just from that first passage. Um, so Paul writes as follows. For rulers, hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, he says, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Um, that's a solid translation, by the way. And this one, I've, I've, I've gone back to the Greek a few times to check it. Um, there are a few striking things, to my mind, in this statement of Paul's, right? First, there is the claim that authority, political authority, binds in conscience, right? That suggestion I mentioned before, that obedience is simply, should be adopted as a practice, simply as a matter of prudence or self-protection, is excluded by that. Submission to the political authorities somehow, and on some level, is a duty to God, right? To one's conscience or to one's moral sense. Um, but how far does this duty extend? 
are there limits to it? Paul's language in this passage suggests that the authorities or servants quote for your good, right? That is, for that of his addressees, that there's something about the way the rulers are wielding their authority that's good. He says they do not bear the sword for no reason. What about cases where one is living under a hostile ruler or even a tyrannical ruler? How far does this duty extend then? Um, Thomas develops this notion uh, 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 in both that commentary on the Romans that I've got, that, I, that I've included some of, and also um, in his statements in the Summa, right? Um, and he gives rather broad breath to this authority. Um, but again, how far does this extend? Uh, to begin with, I would say, it extends rather far, right? Um, this letter, Paul's letter to the Romans, is written, as the title suggests, and as you know, to a sect of Roman Christians, uh, but they were probably, based on the dating of the letter, living under the famously abusive tyrant Nero, right? Um, if there is any, you know, political ruler in history, um, uh, you know, who you might suggest you would not want to obey or follow, Nero would be at least very high on that list, okay? Um, there are other suggestions in the Bible, though, that God might make use of governors, might make use of rulers who, who don't worship him, who are not virtuous or pious, and who are even wicked for his own ends, and this might require some deference on the part of those who live under them. Thomas, in his commentary on this, mentions uh, Jeremiah, chapter 25, verse 9, where the Babylonian king, someone who was actively hostile to the Hebrew god, was referred to as the Lord's servant. He mentions also in uh, the, the line in Isaiah, where Assyria is called the, quote, rod of his anger, the staff of his fury, unquote, right? As though God might make use of pagan and even wicked rulers to carry out his purposes. On the other hand, right, it is impossible for anyone who's read the Acts of the Apostles to understand this obligation unconditionally or as something that never admits of uh, relaxation or, or, or uh, exception, right? As Thomas notes in his commentary uh, reading here, the apostles and martyrs seem to have resisted rulers and authorities and did not receive damnation from God as a result, but rather a reward, right? So just to make that clear, the puzzle is on the one hand, God seems to use these authorities for his own purposes and there's strong language suggesting that one should defer to them, even if they're wicked and cruel. On the other hand, there are models of resistance and there are examples of martyrs who openly defied their rulers and not only were not regarded as wrong for doing so, but were celebrated as among the greatest heroes and accepted into heaven as saints, right? So how do you put those things together? Thomas, as is his characteristic method, resolves this by making some distinctions, right? Um, first, Thomas acknowledges, uh, so he speaks about, I'm uh, sorry, um, 
Thomas uh, uh, resolves this by making uh, distinctions between different kinds of authority and what it means for the authority to be from God, right? He gives three examples or three categories under which, into which authority is, or, or yeah, three ways in which authority can be understood. The first is the sense in which all power comes from God insofar as everything that is done is part of God's providential plan. That is true, Thomas says. And in that respect, every governor has full authority from God. The second two, the second and the third, are somewhat more complicated. <laughs> Thomas says that authority is in a way only from God if it is acquired by rightful means and if it is used justly, right? Now those two standards might seem to militate all the way in the other direction, right? Any usurper and anyone who so much as makes an unjust law might seem to be worthy or might seem to be someone whom you should disobey, right? Um, now, Thomas, in, this con in the context of the commentary on Romans, Thomas doesn't say very much more about that. He develops the thought a little more extensively in the questions on obedience in the Summa, right? One of the specific virtues that falls under the virtue of justice and that has to do especially with following the orders of human authorities, right? Thomas gives the following account there, right? For Thomas, Christian obligation to obedience all ultimately derives from an obligation to God, right? No Christian duty can be contrary to one's duty to God because the higher is the basis of the lower and always outweighs it, okay? This, for Thomas, nevertheless leaves significant space for um, obedience to political authorities, right? Except in those rather narrow cases that you hopefully avoid where a ruler says something or demands something um, that directly contravenes a fundamental demand of justice or a requirement of the divine law, one is bound to obey, right? Or let me put that differently. Many of you probably know the line that Martin Luther King famously quotes from the Summa, that an unjust law is no law at all, right? That's Thomas actually borrowing from uh, a character of Augustine's who says that in On the Free Choice of the Will, right? Um, that seems to militate very strongly against any deference to an unjust, tyrannical, irresponsible leader. Thomas, however, doesn't quite go that far, right? He acknowledges, and argue, not just acknowledges, I would say, but argues as something important that one ought to follow those rules, even unjust commands of a superior, in such cases that they serve the common good, right? To put that more simply and to put it more sensibly, Thomas recognizes the value and importance of the political community, recognizes its dependence on positive laws, 
and recognizes that those laws need to be preserved insofar as that community needs to be preserved, right? To put it still more generally, Thomas derives his duty to obey the authorities from a duty to obey God and from a duty to respect one's community as a part of God's creation, right? But one might still, now, first I must acknowledge, I didn't actually write this, but it crosses my mind, I should say it now. Um, uh, this does leave an enormous amount of room for prudent judgment in determining precisely when a law must be broken and precisely when a political authority may be resisted, right? The simple clarity of having a, uh, an openly anti-Christian or anti, you know, an, an openly anti-Christian ruling authority isn't something that human beings very often have, right? I would say even now, with all of the complications of the liberal state, we don't have something that clearly emphatically anti-Christian, and it becomes something of a matter of prudence to decide exactly where the line should be drawn. But in drawing those prudential conclusions, it's of the highest importance for Thomas that we recognize the, the, um, the claim that the political community makes and rightly makes on us as a part of God's creation. And this is the very last thing I would like to address. I've said that we have an obligation to serve our communities, to serve our nations. Where does that obligation come from? Why? I mean, what is, you know, to put this more simply, what is the answer to the challenge of those New Testament Christians who say, we're beyond all of that, we need not be bound by it? Here again, let me go back to Thomas's commentary uh, on, on this passage from Romans. I'm going to read out a little more from that first selection I gave you, 1017. He writes, so against those who say that freedom in Jesus means freedom from political law, Thomas says the following. But the freedom granted by Christ is a freedom of the spirit, by which we are set free of sin and death, as was said before. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. That's Romans 8, right? The flesh, however, remains subject to slavery, as was stated before, also Romans. Therefore, the time when a man freed by Christ will not be liable to any subjection, either spiritual or carnal, will be when Christ delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. In other words, you guys can argue with me if you don't think I'm giving this a good reading, but I think I, I, I claim I am. <laughs> um, uh, this obligation derives from the duality of man, subject at once to the burden of sin and freed by the Spirit, right? For Thomas, so long, and for Paul, as I understand him, so long as we are pilgrims on this earth, so long as Christians are pilgrims on this earth, they will be divided by that fundamental tension that is ineradicable by any worldly means. 
created reality maintains its integrity and maintains its worth as God's creation, as something that God regards as good. As Thomas loves to say, grace does not destroy, but perfects nature. And the political nature that we have needs to be served so long as the end of the world has not yet come, right? And therefore, for Thomas, in the final case, the duties of charity, which are ultimately duties of God, also entail certain political obligations, ones that must give way when God demands otherwise and when the conflict is, 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 is clear, but ones which are weighty nevertheless. And in that sense, it seems to me, just to answer my opening question, um, Christians as political creatures owe an awful lot to their country, but less than they owe to God. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.